telling somebody earlier, I don't know if it's that time where you still say happy Thanksgiving or you start saying Merry Christmas or do you have to say both, right? Um, we, uh, there's a man, his name is Paul, church persecutor turned church planter, whom in Acts chapter 17 is in Athens, Greece. And a scene is painted for us in Acts chapter 17 in which Paul, again, this church persecutor turned church planter, goes to what, what is a, a altar to an unknown God that was built. This is a pagan altar. And he uses this altar as a launching point to tell the people, to tell the Greeks about the one true God, about Yahweh, about Jesus, about God's story of redemption. Now, what's interesting in this passage is the altar built was by, by all accounts, a pagan altar built to a God who was a pagan God amongst other gods. And Paul repurposes it in order to tell them the truth about the one true God. And it wasn't too many years later when Christians started repurposing this thing, this pagan holiday at the end of the year called winter solstice, and they commandeered that holiday and they took it over and they repurposed it and said, whoa, whoa, you were using this holiday to worship pagan gods. We are going to use it in all of its trappings. We're gonna retool it as an altar to point towards the glory of the one true God. And every year around the holidays, every year around Advent, some blogs pop out here and there and you'll see them about how such and such Christmas tradition is actually rooted in a pagan practice here and a pagan practice there. And some of them are rooted in Christian history and some of them not so much. And in the spirit of what Paul did to that altar, I just have to say, as you see the trees lit, as you see the presents on the ground back here, that we are very okay and confidently, as Christians have done for centuries, commandeering what the world took from God and taking it back and saying, whoa, 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 we're gonna use this to glorify him instead because God was using trees and lights and gift giving long before pagans were to his glory. And so in our culture today, we just gotta point out that Christmas in our world is an altar to consumerism and materialism. And we gotta be aware of that because as Christians, we have the opportunity to, to, to point to that altar and say, whoa, 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 you're getting it wrong. This actually points to something far, far better in Jesus. And that's the opportunity we have as we invite people into church, as we invite people to Christmas Eve, as we use this season to remind our kids and to live out what the season truly is about. Now today we find ourselves in Luke chapter one. We're gonna be in three verses. And Gary gave me permission to give him a hard time about something because he texted me in between the services after I preached this, these three verses, the first three verses of a passage that was already read. And he's like, actually, I made a mistake. I thought you were gonna preach verses 68 to 79. And then he looked at the preaching grid, which he filled out and he sent to me. And it was only 68 to 70 because he hit the, the zero instead of the nine on the keyboard. And uh, he was caught off guard when I only preached three verses. So you're getting three verses. I hope it's enough. We will read plenty of your scripture. This is what you get by coming to second service. I'm gonna read Luke 1, 68 through 70. Today, the focus on hope. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Now, Advent comes from, from a Latin word, adventus, from the verb advenir. And if, you, if you're Hispanic, or I'm sorry, advenire, if you're Hispanic, advenir is a word you have in your language, Spanish. Uh, in English, we don't. It carries the, it's the idea of coming to, arrival. That's what we're gonna talk about today. As we focus in on the very first verse, one verse per point, the first thing we're gonna highlight is that there is hope in the arrival of Jesus. Before we get to power, before we get to his faithfulness, before we get to what he accomplishes, the mere arrival. In the text, it says, blessed is Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited. And I just wanna break down that word visited because it isn't merely showing up. It actually carries within it this word, the nuance of, of bringing care and aid. We see this word used elsewhere in the New Testament, translated differently. In Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Hebrews 2, but someone else has testified. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? That word care, same word as visited. James 1, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That word to look after, the same word used here. One Greek scholar in the, in the Greek lexicon was referring specifically to this word in its context, defined it like this, of divine oversight, to quote, look after, make an appearance to help. It's our context. And what we get here in Luke is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is, 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 is sharing with us what's about his son, but then also about Jesus. What we get in this very first verse is the connotations of hope merely in the fact that he's actually going to be there and to be there with a purpose. Now let's just back up for a second because we can relate to this in some sense in our world. Many of us, you've probably been in a circumstance, a situation in which the, it's just beyond you. You are not capable in and of yourself. You do not feel like you have the capacity to do what needs to be done. You are broken down on the side of the road and you are waiting for AAA. And when they show up, there's a sigh of relief. Ah, they're here. You have questions about a health issue and the expert has shown up. The doctor has walking into the room and merely by their presence, there's some sigh of relief. Ah, they're here. You've been with the children that you love so affectionately all day. And that friend, babysitter, mother-in-law, spouse comes in and you gently hand them off. Right, it's more like, take them. But there's a sigh of relief, oh, you're here. That there's hope in the arrival. When you feel like you're in danger and you see the cops pull up, when something's on fire and the fire truck gets there, that there's a sense of relief and that relief is a manifestation of the hope that you have. And it comes about in the arrival. Now the Jews for the longest time were waited expectantly centuries in situations far more cumbersome than many of us can relate to. And they were waiting expectantly for the arrival of their Messiah. We're talking centuries of, law, of a law-bearing burden 
a people tasked with keeping a perfect law from a perfect God. And they needed someone to come who could bear that law, fulfill that law, obey that law perfectly. And here what we have with the visit of Jesus to redeem, he's here. We have a people who have wrestled with their stiff necked nature and the poor choices flowing out of their hardened hearts. People incapable of seeing or hearing, let alone listening to what God has to say. And they needed that person whose mission it was to take that heart of stone and to melt it into a heart of flesh, to engrave the affections of our God and for our God onto that heart. Jesus has visited, he's here. From the earliest chapters of Genesis, after humanity rebelled against God and God promised he would send someone, that snake that tempted you, he's gonna send somebody who's gonna step on that snake's head, gonna make things right. You can just feel all of creation release a sigh of relief at the birth of the savior who has come to do just that. (sighs) He's here. There is hope in his arrival. But that person getting there and that person showing up, that hope would probably quickly go out the door if it was made clear they didn't know what they were doing or couldn't, they couldn't do what they were there to do. The mechanic shows up and it turns out you have a Tesla and, and they won't touch that thing with a 10 foot pole. I've had mechanics actually tell me they wouldn't touch a Tesla with a 10 foot pole because of safety stuff and th- they weren't properly trained. And you're like, well, that's, that, that's not a relief. I don't own a Tesla. It's just the first thing that came to my mind. Um, when the doctor comes in, it's like, oh, your circumstances are beyond me. It's not a, you have the arrival, but that is quickly followed by what? Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now you and me don't use the word horn like this very often. When you think of horn, you probably think of beeping at that person who cuts you off, all right? Affectionately in a God glorifyingly way, right? <laughs> beeping at them with your GBC sticker on the back of your car. (laughs) Jesus loves you. (laughs) I know some of you don't put the GBC sticker on the back of your car because of the way that you drive. (laughs) But that word horn refers to power. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the word horn is an idiomatic use of the word power. Sometimes in your translations, two times in Lamentations in particular, it's not translated horn. They actually translate it as might or power. In Jeremiah 31, it says the horn of Moab, which was, a, which was an opposing tribe, a horn of Moab is cut off, declares the Lord, meaning that their power has been diminished. And God tells his people that he has raised up a horn of what? Salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Referring back to lots of different scriptures in the Old Testament. Because a thousand years prior, King king of Israel was David and a promise was made that out of his lineage, such a horn of salvation would come. But this power to save, this power to redeem, going back to the prior verse, isn't merely a power to save out of, a power to redeem out of. And some of us 
For, for us, the gospel kind of ends there. A common picture or story to represent the gospel might go something like this. You or me, some adult at the bottom of a, of a muddy pit and that, that sin, that grime and that dirt and that filth is, is the baggage of our sin weighing us down and we just can't escape. And God climbs down into that pit and he picks you up because you can't do it on your own. And he climbs out of that pit and he cleans you off. And that's where the story ends. Now that's good so far, but it's not the whole picture. We're not merely saved from, but Jesus is the power of our salvation to save us unto. Galatians 4, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. For what reason? To redeem for what reason? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans 8, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. John 1, but to all who did receive him, last one, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. We're not merely saved out of slavery. We're not merely redeemed out of our sinfulness, but into a new identity. That's the power, that's the horn of salvation that Jesus is in our lives. And so in that story, it's not merely you in a pit. In that story, you are an orphan in that pit and God takes you and he brings you out and he cleans you off and he doesn't leave you there. He takes you home, he gives you a room, he gives you food, he gives you clothing and he says, you're not an orphan anymore. That's the story, not merely saved out, but in two. And as I wrestled with this this week, we've talked a lot about idols over the last few weeks. We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy and, and we'll get back to that. The kinds of idols that distract and distort our affections. But the truth is there are also false horns, if you will, in this world that whisper lies into your life and invade trying to convince you that you are who you are, not because you have Jesus, but because you have dot, 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 whatever that other thing might be. We're talking about things in our world that we give the power to shape our identity that only Jesus should have. For me personally, as I reflected this week, for much of my life, even into seminary grades, were a major sticking point for me. I was the kid who got the straight A's and I got the awards and I went to a good school and, and a lot of my identity, who is Zach? I am who I am because I have, I wouldn't have said Jesus because I have the A, if I was honest. And then I got to college and after in high school, breezing through the algebras and calculus and physics, I got to college and I took a statistics class. And I got a D plus. It's my first and only D plus. Now I retook it, still didn't get an A. Someone actually came up to me after first service and said, hey, I got a D minus in my first stats class and now I teach it. So <laughs> like, that's, that's pretty good, that's pretty good. But it, it shattered my perception of myself a little bit. And I gotta say in, in the best kind of way. Some of your kids don't wrestle with this. For some, perhaps maybe it's sports. There's plenty of other things. But for those of you who have kids who define themselves by their grades, this may sound weird, but my prayer is that they fail. And I'm not talking about the kind of failure that devastates a life. 
I'm standing before you now. This isn't a bad gig. I'm talking about the kind of failure that devastates the idols in your life. Grades. Haven't talked to a few different counselors about the difficulty, the most difficult transitions that people face in adulthood. Two of the biggest ones, and not for everyone, but two of the biggest ones for a lot of people are the transition into empty nesting and the transition into retirement when it comes to identity. That after spending years, decades, identifying myself primarily as the parent of this child or these particular children, for them to all of a sudden be gone. You know, when someone comes up to you and they, and they ask you, how are you doing? You got your, your literate kid. They ask you, how are you doing? And the first thing you talk about is your kids. When someone says, how can I pray for you? And your, your, your gut response is, well, this is how you can pray for my kids. That people come to define themselves in terms of the children that they are raising. And one day they leave and that causes, that fractures, that, that it, it's a struggle. For others, it's a career, the move into retirement. Because the truth is for the longest time, you would say, I am who I am at my core, at the foundation of my identity. I am who I am because of the authority I wield over certain people at work, because of the rank I have or the rank of my spouse, because the talents and skills that I've acquired over time and used to serve people. And one day, either by physical weakness or the loss of mental faculty, those things will go away. And for some, that is a struggle as it competes for the, def for the definition at your core of what it is to be you. Fourth and finally, I wrestled with this this, this week as a, as, a, as a new thing, beauty. For some of us, when I say beauty, I'm talking about your relationship with, with the mirror, with your muscles, with your makeup. I'm talking about how it is that you feel and where it is that you find confidence in the outfits that you wear, the brands that you need to have. And there's two sides of this spectrum. On the one side, there's people who find kind of their ultimate hope in their looks and that's where they go to be reassured. And then there's the others who find so little hope in that, that they feel they need to cover it up with whatever amounts of clothing or powder in order to refine that confidence. We have kids growing up in a media blitzing age that are growing up insecure more and more so about body image and they grow up boys and girls with parents who would say, yo, you're, you're beautiful just the way you are. You're handsome the way God made you. And then they watch parents not actually believe it about themselves. You look at their parents perhaps at best feeling confused and at worst, just thinking they're fake. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Working hard in school isn't a bad thing. Caring about the way you look isn't a bad thing. I'm not saying makeup or clothing. I'm not saying loving your kids and investing in them is a bad thing. None of these things are in and of themselves a bad thing. Where they become toxic is when we begin giving them power over our confidence and identity that only Jesus should have. And you're like, well, I don't know if that's me. Well, if you had to go a certain amount of time without these things, and some of you have had to, I, I wonder to myself, if, if, if the Holy Spirit departed from my life and these other things departed from my life, which would make me more insecure? Some of you are like, I don't struggle with kids. Can you just take them? 
But whether it be a job, whether it be failing, a failure in school, because one day that failure will come. Heck, if you had to go a week without makeup and a week without the Holy Spirit, which one of those weeks would bombard your confidence more? And would your kids agree? These are things that we give identity shaping power to. And the truth is that Jesus as the horn of our salvation should be the thing at our core that defines and renews and remakes and reshapes that identity, not any of these other things. And there's plenty that I didn't speak about. Again, not bad in and of themselves, but we need to be careful in the way that we relate to them. Finally, last verse, there's hope in the arrival, there's hope in his power, there's hope in his constancy. I'm gonna go back to verse 69 and read it through 70. It says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. You see that verse 70? Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. What do we have here? I chose the word constancy. I actually went back and forth with different staff members, me and Amber Cameron, our women's ministry director, going back and forth on, what's the word here? Because track record doesn't quite do it. Faithfulness, not exactly what I'm looking for. This idea of constancy captures a bunch of different things, particularly dependable and faithful together, that God shows up and does what he says he's gonna do. That he shows up and he does what he says he's gonna do. And that's what's coming out of this this final verse, that, that this is happening just as he spoke hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And we have tons of these promises and prophecies throughout the scripture. I'll give you five real fast. That in Isaiah 7, it said that he would be born of a virgin, which is testified to in Matthew 1. That in Malachi, it said that he would be preceded by the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist, which is what we get in Matthew chapter 11. That in Jeremiah 31, it says that this person would come to initiate a new covenant, one in which the law is taken off our backs and written on our hearts. And that comes to pass, verified in Hebrews 12. That in Isaiah 61, that he would be one to accomplish redemptive deeds that we could not. And Luke 4, amongst elsewhere, testifies to that fact. And finally, Isaiah 53, that he would suffer on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to. First Peter two and elsewhere. That we look at the testimony of Jesus and God said he'd do it and then God did it. And when you look at that, it gives us a certain kind of hope as we look at the promises made to us in the present, as we look forward, not just to years from now, but tomorrow to the drive home that we have promises that he's made and promises that we can trust in him keeping. Jesus actually tells us that he offers rest. Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. He says, come to me. He doesn't say go to Netflix for rest. He doesn't say go to your Kindle for rest. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, so many of us feel the weight of so many burdens in this life and so many of those burdens are things, if you're honest, outside of your control. We feel the burden of a past we cannot change. 
We feel the burden of a future that we cannot control. We feel the burdens of decisions of the people around us whom we love, perhaps children, grown or young. We carry the burdens of those decisions. And Jesus says, come to me with those burdens and many, many more unnamed. Give them to me so that you can have rest. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Promises rest. And we can trust in that because there's hope in God's constancy. Isaiah 40, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. God doesn't promise that the world will be easy, but he promises to give you the strength to get through it. James 1, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Wisdom. What does he say? If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you should lacks wisdom, some of you have a spouse, you can do this too. He's talking about you. Guys, talking about you too. Parents, if you lack wisdom, ask. Coworkers, if you lack wisdom, ask. Bosses, if you lack wisdom, ask. Coaches, if you lack wisdom, ask. People who are about to host that cousin who always talks about politics for Thanksgiving. If you lack wisdom, ask. And if you forgot to ask, Christmas is coming. It's not too late. Ask. And because we worship a God who does what he says he's gonna do, if you ask, he'll give it to you. Romans 6, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, this is read not too long ago for a baptism service, Jason, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Newness, newness. The old is gone, the new has come for those who are in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians. We're talking about oldness. I'm not talking about your age. Okay, we got 93-year-old Willie serving in, as an usher, okay? Boys, bo boys just as new in the spirit as any of us. Newness of life, talking about the leaving behind of the things that used to define you, knowing that God has a promise each and every day to bring newness into your life. His mercies are new every single morning. And this doesn't mean that you're not gonna fail. This doesn't mean that, that, that the parasitic sinful flesh isn't gonna work its way into your life somehow, but that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you get to bat that thing back and you get to experience victory day by day in this kind of newness, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. This is the kind of newness that we're promised and we can trust in it because there's hope in his constancy. Finally, freedom. Now, freedom in America means a lot of things. We're not talking about patriotic freedom. We're not talking about a nationalistic freedom. We're not talking about freedom from Britain, from Rome. We're talking about a much more important kind of freedom. In John chapter eight, so if the sun sets you free, it says, so, so really we'll be free, but so you'll be free indeed. I like that translation. It's just engraved into my heart. I think that's King James. You'll be free indeed. Talking about a freedom from sin, a freedom from slavery, and not just freedom from, but freedom to, into, the kind of adoption that we were talking about earlier. Freedom 
to experience the life that God has designed for you. Freedom to experience the joy and the satisfaction that God wants for you, knowing that it's not always gonna be easy, but you'll never be alone because God in visiting us has not only dwelt with us, but when Jesus left, he gave us the Holy Spirit so that we'll never be alone. There's hope in his constancy because God does what he says he's gonna do. Us receiving and trusting in him leads to these things, to rest, to strength, to wisdom, to newness, to freedom, and much, much more. Church, as you go about your week this week, I challenge you, and you can ask a friend or a spouse or a child, or if you're a child, you can ask your parents. So you talk about hope, the hope of the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ, the true horn of our salvation. What are the things competing to be the ultimate hopes in your life? What are the things that you cling to that make you say to yourself, everything's gonna be okay? That when life feels like it's going down the toilet, you cling to it. Life's gonna be okay. Is it a screen? Is it a bank account? Is it a mirror? Is it a house? Is it a relationship? What is it? And pray that the Holy Spirit would manifest, would, would, would just bring that to light so that you can pray to God, would you remove this as a source of ultimate hope? Because little hopes are good, ultimate hope belongs with God. And he gives us these little things in order to point us unfailingly at how good he is. And it's just so easy for us to exchange the created for the creator. There is hope in the arrival, and that's what Advent is all about, arrival. But the one who arrived wasn't powerless. He's the only one with the power to do what needed to be done, and he did it so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God. And knowing that, we can trust in the track record so that we can look back and give thanks, but we can look forward and hope not just for eternity, but for now, for your relationships, for your workplaces, for your sports teams, for your schools, there's hope. And we need to grab this church because the world needs it. And when they look at your life, they need to not see the false hopes, they need to see you clinging to the true hope because they need it just as badly as we do. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the season, the opportunity to reflect and just marinate, Lord, in your coming. We thank you that we get to look back on all these things in retrospect, knowing, Lord, how it ends and knowing what is coming. We thank you for the gift that you've given us to live out today, Lord, in the Holy Spirit. And God, we just pray that as we go about our week, as we go about our day, as we spend time with, with people, with friends, with family, with those whom we love, and perhaps those who irritate us, God, that you would fill us with hope and that you would be the one that ultimately shapes our identity. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name we pray, amen.